Good morning, everyone. And a special welcome to visitors that I see. You're very welcome. Very, we're glad you're here. I have to tell you that I'm standing here and I feel a little bit of pressure because I'm standing here and Jim's sitting out there. So this podium I'm standing behind is beginning to look a lot like a pressure cooker's. So, but anyway, I spoke to uh, this congregation, but on the other hand, although I feel pressure, on the other hand, number one, I'm among friends, and number two, Jesus Christ is in the midst of all of us. But I spoke the first time a couple of months ago, back in June, and I did a sermon on faith. And in this sermon on faith, I kind of based it on a sliding scale of faith where if somebody like uh, Abraham had a faith of a nine or a 10, somebody like Mark Twain had a faith of zero. And that was based on his definition of faith, which is the belief in something that isn't true. So, and then the first two people I talked about in the Bible came from Genesis four, and that was Cain and Abel. Now, Cain and Abel both had faith. But Abel gave a sacrifice to the Lord of some of the fat portions from the flocks that he raised. But Cain gave a sacrifice to the Lord of some of the fruits from the fields where he tilled the fields. And the way it turns out, God was very pleased with Abel's sacrifice but he wasn't pleased with Cain's sacrifice now what's behind the scenes that we don't know that the Bible doesn't tell us that somewhere prior to this God had given these two men and probably everybody else that was alive at that time some guidance and rules on how they were to worship God. Well, Abel evidently followed these guidelines because his worship, his sacrifice was acceptable to God. But Cain's was not. And Cain was downcast. And the Lord says, Cain, why are you so downcast? And he says, would not have your sacrifice been acceptable to if you had not done what was right. So that tells me right there that these two men knew what was right from wrong. So, there's probably a lesson in that for us today, is we need to worship God, but we need to worship God under his terms and not under our terms. Now, Mike read a scripture from us from 1 Timothy 6.11, And I had him read that scripture because it's not a scripture that we read very often. But my scripture this morning actually comes from, my lesson this morning actually comes from 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7. For this very reason, make every effort. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, 
and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Now, we can read several scriptures similar to this, one that Mike read from us from 1 Timothy, but Galatians 5.22 also says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Other listings with similar lists come from 2 Corinthians 6.6, 2 Corinthians 5.9, Colossians 3, 12 through 15. And I chose the scripture from 2 Peter 1, 5 through 7 for no particular reason because these Christian graces are fruits of the Spirit, are qualities of Christian character that we can read in a lot of places. Now, if faith is the foundation of our Christianity, as we add goodness and knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness to our foundation of faith, what we have is a pyramid. And that pyramid just gets bigger and bigger and bigger as we add all of these qualities of Christian character are fruits of the Spirit. Now, the first one we come to is we're supposed to add to our faith goodness. Now, goodness is, is from the NIV translation, and it translates it as goodness. The King James Version calls it virtue. And another translation, and I couldn't find it later on, but one that I particularly like, is moral excellence. And I don't know why, I just like that translation better than any of the others I read. Well, goodness or virtue or moral excellence is a determination to do what is right. It's the character of Christ. It's acting in such a way that you choose goodness over corruption. And it means moral courage to do what is right when nobody else is looking. Philippians 4.8 tells us, Family brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent, are praiseworthy, think about such things. Now, everything I told you, is, as far as I know, is true to God's word. But it's hard for me to remember this because these are things I've read. But I want to read one more scripture, or part of a scripture, and it comes from the last book of Judges, the last the last verse in the book of Judges. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. 
Does that sound familiar to anything that's going on today? Well, let me be clear. God determines what moral excellence is. Man does not, and we do not. Jesus demonstrated moral excellence. He demonstrated moral excellence with the Roman centurion who had a servant was very sick, and Jesus healed him. Jesus showed moral excellence when he healed the woman who had a blood issue. And Jesus also had moral excellence when he replaced the ear of Malchus that Peter had so violently cut off with his sword. And I've never quite figured this out. I mean, Peter had a sword among the the disciples that was with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. And Malchus, Malchus was the servant of the of of the high priest that came to the garden to arrest Jesus and sometimes Peter had kind of a violent nature but he pulled out that sword and he swung it at Malchus and so if he'd have swung down I don't know how he stopped before he got to his shoulder or Malchus ducked I don't know that still seems pretty (laughs) pretty difficult to me Peter must have been very good with that sword but Jesus reached down and picked up Malchus's ear and put it back, put it back on his ear. And to me, that showed moral excellence. But that put Malchus in a very precarious situation because he couldn't talk about it. Because if he did, he's acknowledging the deity of Christ. So Malchus never said anything about it. And that part of this, that part of this Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane and being arrested and who actually which apostle actually swung the sword and which, and which servant actually lost his ear is not reported until the book of John. And I think the reason for that is John wrote his book 50 years later, and therefore there could have been no repercussions on Peter at, at that point. Just a side note. Now, Stephen also showed a lot of moral excellence. And I'm just going to read what Stephen did in Acts 7, 51 through 53. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. And there ever... Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not per, was there was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute that even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one and now you have betrayed and murdered him you have received the law that was put into effect through angels but have not obeyed it Stephen is calling a spade a spade. He's telling them what they really are. So in conclusion, a mark of moral excellence, Matthew 12, 35 tells us, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. 
Now, Second Peter tells us to add to our goodness, our virtue, he tells us to add knowledge. Now, Peter's writing this book to other Christians. He's not writing it to unbelievers. So I have to believe that the knowledge that he's talking about is not the knowledge that we gained and the, not the knowledge that we heard about, about Jesus Christ being the Son of God and about Jesus being crucified on the cross and being raised on the third day and being our Lord and Savior and being the only name under heaven and earth by which we can be saved. He's talking about knowledge beyond this because he's who he's writing this to already believes all this, as most of us here do, if not everyone. So Peter's writing about other knowledge. He's writing about knowledge that helps us determine right from wrong. He's talking about knowledge that gives us wisdom. He's talking about knowledge that helps us to understand when we might be hearing false teaching. This knowledge also governs our thoughts and our everyday practices. And as I said a minute ago, it gives us practical wisdom. Now, one of my favorite nights at this church has always been the first Sunday night of every month. Jim always did a thing on Sunday night that was called questions and answers. And us people in the congregation were asked by email or a letter or just giving him a note about questions that we had when we ran into things in the Bible that we didn't understand. So one of my favorite Sunday nights was when Jim covered those questions and answers because it was full of knowledge. And it, sometimes it was questions that you might have had yourself but were afraid to ask or never thought to ask. Jim covered them very thoroughly. So another scripture I'm going to read is one that we hear at least once a month, the Second Timothy 2.15. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a workman who does not need to be ashamed, who correctly handles the word of truth. And Philippians 1 9, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Therefore, we study God's word so that we can learn to act properly in all circumstances and all situations. Now, Peter told us to add to our faith, he told us to add virtue or goodness. Then he told us to add knowledge. And he tells us to add self-control. This is the application that governs our thoughts and actions. It controls your passions and your desires as well as your Moods. In other words, sometimes we just need to get a grip. Circumstances under which 
self-control need to be heeded or actually thought about. And it's things I thought of. When we're angry, is that not a situation where we need to think about self-control? Do we not say things sometimes that we don't mean when we're angry? We wish we hadn't have, we could have taken them back. Should, wish we could take them back. Unfortunately, I've done it. I try to think about it more. Got to control your tongue and your actions by your own will. What about in the pursuit of pleasures that are not in our best interest? Could it be detrimental to our health? Could it be detrimental to our spirituality? Is this not an area where we need to exercise self-control? And it's no wonder that in Titus and also in Timothy, the qualifications of an elder, one of the qualifications of an elder is rather he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled and upright, holy, and disciplined. An elder certainly needs to be self-controlled. He's got a lot of situations that he's got to con- that he's got to show leadership in, where a lack of self-control would not serve him very well. And I think Proverbs twenty-five twenty-eight sums it up best on self-control. Like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. Now, so we go back. First of all, we have goodness or moral excellence. Then to that, we added some knowledge. Then we added some self-control. Now Peter tells us to add perseverance. Now perseverance, I think, is one of the easier words that I'm going to be able to handle this morning. It's remaining steadfast to the Lord and his cause. Think about Job's perseverance. It was just amazing what Job went through. And, you know, the, 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 the Satan tempted God and says, there's not a righteous man on earth. And God told him, he says, that his servant Job was. Satan said, not if he was tested. Well, God let Satan test Job. And Job lost everything he had, but he remained faithful and he persevered and he got back everything he had lost plus more. Now, I'm sitting here talking about perseverance, but I think that we have a very good example of perseverance sitting among us. And most of us got up this morning and we put on our pants, our dresses, our skirts, and our shirts. Some of us put on a tie, which I don't do very often. But it wasn't difficult for me to do that. I felt good, but there's a couple sitting in here right now. They do not feel good all the time. And I'll just, everybody knows who they are. Smitty and Julia sitting over here. They didn't get up and get dressed this morning as easily as you and I did. It was difficult. But do you know why they're here? Because they want to be among God's people on Sunday morning 
and they want to be able to come here to worship God. And they would put up with their discomfort that they have in order to be here. Thank you all. Now, Hebrews 10.36, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And paraphrasing Romans 8.28, in other words, all things work together for those who love the Lord. And James 5.11, going back to Job, you have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of passion and mercy. Now, starting over again, we had virtue or moral excellence. We added to that knowledge. To the knowledge, we added self-control. We added some perseverance. And now we're going to add godliness. Godliness, to me, was another one of those words like moral excellence that was hard for me to put in a little box. But the best definition of it being like God, continually awareness of God's presence affecting every aspect of life. And the best way for me to explain godliness to me and hopefully to y'all was to first dwell on its opposite. And the opposite of godliness is worldliness. So worldliness is selfish. Godliness is selfless. Worldliness looks outward. Godliness looks inward. Worldliness says, my will be done. Godliness says, thy will be done. 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Matthew 6, 19 through 21, paraphrased, says, store up yourselves treasures in heaven. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Godliness plus contentment brings great gain. We've heard a lot lately, especially in Sunday school, about godliness and contentment. And you don't get into worldliness and godliness very far before you get into the fact that we need to be content with what we have. And, of course, the love of money comes in there pretty quickly. But I decided not to dwell on that this morning. And my time is starting to run out. Some of my nervousness is gone. I appreciate your attention. But the next one is brotherly kindness. And I'm not going to cover brotherly kindness because I want to do something else before I stop. And uh, I'm, if I can read that clock right, it's about, it's, a, it's about time for me to close. But I like to put things in little boxes. I have a tool chest. I have two tool chests in my garage. They're both six foot tall. One of them, I think, is three and a half feet wide. The other one's two and a half feet tall. 
two and a half feet wide by six feet tall. I have everything organized in these toolboxes. In the top of one toolbox, I probably have six or eight rows of sockets all in descending order. I can go right to the one I want. I have in another box, I have a, a bunch of American wrenches in, in inch increments. In the drawer next to it, I have a lot of metric wrenches. In another drawer, I have, I have every plier you can imagine. Our, now, Grady's got more than I got, but I have a lot of pliers in that next drawer. So that's a neat little box for me. But that doesn't do anything for our lesson this morning. So I tried to think of another neat little box for, for us this morning. And I saw a bird's nest, but I couldn't get it. It's too high. But these two robins had built a bird's nest on a fork in a tree, which their faith was that that fork was not going to break. And they took a couple little twigs of knowledge and they started making a circle. I mean, they took a couple of little twigs of, of moral excellence or virtue and they started making a circle. Then they intertwined that nest with some smaller twigs, intertwined it all together. So they started adding some knowledge to that. Then they took some pine straw and they put the pine straw around the nest. And all this is intertwined together. There's two birds working together that do this. So they used a lot of self-control to do this, and they used perseverance all the way to get through this thing. So they don't have hands, you know. They just got their little beaks to work with, but somehow they intertwine all this together. And I know we've all picked up a bird's nest before, and you can hold it together in one hand. It doesn't fall apart. And there's no glue. There's no mud or anything that holds this thing together. It's just the intricacies of this, all this put together. And then they had laid some eggs, and both birds working together showed brotherly kindness toward one another, and they both sat on the eggs until they hatched. Then they used love to raise these little birds until they were old enough to be on their own. Now, if you took this little bird's nest and held it in your hand and you started taking it apart, took out a little piece of knowledge, or if you took out a little piece of, uh, of perseverance, or if you took out a little piece of moral excellence, the nest is going to be able to start to crumble because it's not intertwined anymore. It's not tied together. But the one thing that you can do to that nest without destroying it you have this nest. You know what you can do? You can keep making this nest bigger and bigger and bigger your entire life. You can always add you can always add more moral excellence or virtue. You can always add more knowledge. You can always add self-control. You can always persevere. So that's my lesson for this morning. I did not cover brotherly kindness, and I did not cover love, because love is probably two or three sermons in itself. And brotherly kindness, Scott did a real good job on covering that back sometime in the early part of June, and I remember it. I remember some things for that sermon. So we're going to offer an invitation right now.
And what does that invitation mean? That means that if you have faith that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, he died for your sins, he's the only name on this earth in which you can be saved, and you've reached that point and you haven't been baptized, this invitation would be for you. Now, what is a, another scenario on that same thing? It might be that maybe you don't feel like baptism is necessary. Well, in the book of Acts, from the best I can tell, there are 10 conversions in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a history book of the, of the first century church. That's what it is. You go through it, it's actually a history book. In every one of those conversions, nine of them are very specific about baptism. One is not so specific, but there's some verses left out. But it is very, it's just hard not to read it and not say that that person went down into the water and was baptized. It's a pretty good argument, folks. Now, another thing for the invitation, or if you're a Christian, you need the prayers of the church for any reason, then you we can help you that way, then please come forward. So the invitation is open. As we stand and sing, we can, if you have any need, please come forward.